The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible this morning, I hope you do. I invite you to open up to Isaiah chapter 41, where we're going to be at today. We'll be in verses 1 through 10. I've titled today's message, Fear Not. Fear Not. Um, most of us are probably familiar with that uh, reality television show. I'm not sure if it's still on TV, but it used to be on TV, uh, Fear Factor. So some, I see some people shaking their head. Is it still on TV or is it like, is that old now it's begun? So I don't know. Uh, I just remember you would, you'd watch that show and, and the premise behind it, of course, is that, that people would willingly put themselves in the midst of their most serious types of fears. Uh, so if you had a, a fear of spiders, maybe they would stick your head in a, in a tank with spiders crawling all over your head. Or if you had a fear of heights, they would take you to, the, to, some, to some pinnacle of a height and then make you stand there or cross over a bridge or what have you. Um, that was the, the, the idea of fear factor. And we all have fears of different types, don't we? Uh, I don't know what your fear might be. It might, maybe your fear is acrophobia. We had a, a talk about this in Sunday school this morning, and that's my particular fear. Anybody know what acrophobia is? So those of you in, in Sunday school would know, what my, at least my class would know what it is. It's not spiders, that's arachnophobia, is spiders. Acrophobia is actually fear of heights. And so I am, I am not a big fan of heights. I can get on this roof without much of a problem. I live in a two-story house. Uh, as Matt Martin will attest, I will not get on my roof. I call him and say, hey, I got somebody on my roof. Can you come down to the house and, and help me out? I am not a big fan of heights. Maybe you're... So my acrophobia is probably closely related to barophobia. Any takers on what barophobia is? No, it's not fear of bears, although it's a good, good guess there. Barophobia is the fear of gravity. And so it's not so much being high, it's I'm afraid of what's going to happen when gravity grabs hold of me and brings me down. So I'm afraid more or less of the sudden stop at the end rather than the, um, rather than the height that I'm at. Uh, but there are all kinds of phobias. There's agoraphobia, which is a fear of open spaces or crowds. Here, here's one, being a former math teacher, I thought this was cute. Um, arithmophobia, a fear of numbers. I didn't know there was such a thing, but evidently there are people who have a fear of numbers. And so then there's... A fear of long words, astrophobia, fear of thunder and lightning. Here's another one that I just don't understand, but I, I'm pretty sure that some of you have this one because you've talked to me about it before. Bibliophobia, not, it's not fear of the Bible. Bibliophobia is fear of books. And so some of you are like, eh, I don't want to touch a book. Uh, claustrophobia, glossophobia. I do know, I've talked to some of you in this room, and you, you do have glossophobia. That is the fear of speaking in public. And that used to be something, frankly, when I was in college, I had a tremendous fear of speaking in public that I guess was really not conducive to being a preacher if you have a fear of speaking in public. But after doing it for as many years as I've been doing, I've kind of gotten over that particular fear. Necrophobia, fear of death. Um, here, here's, here's a phobia that every little boy has when they're about seven, eight years old. Um, I'm going to try to pronounce this because it's, it's a mouthful. Philema... Philematobophobia. 
It's a fear of kissing. Um, and you know, little boys, they don't want to get cooties or whatever by kissing, so they have, they have that fear. Um, and then, then as I was doing my research, the favorite fear that I found of all is phobia phobia, which is a fear of phobias. And so what, whatever your type of fear is, we, we all have, we're, we're honest with ourselves, there are things that we're like, yeah, I'd rather not be found in that situation. And so today we're going to be seeing what does the Word of God have to say to us about fear? You're not scared? All right, well, we're going to find out here, okay? So if you're in, if you're in Isaiah chapter 41, say amen. All right, follow along with me as I read. Let me get my glasses on so I can read better. Some, day, some days I remember to bring these and other days I don't, but here we go. Isaiah 41, beginning in verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up the one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths, His feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brothers, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corner, corners saying to you you are my servant i have chosen you and not cast you off fear not for i am with you be not dismayed for i am your god i will strengthen you i will help you i will uphold you with my righteous right hand it's the word of the lord let's pray together father in heaven thank you so much for this day and for your word that you've given us and i pray lord jesus that you would help us now as we read Your Word, as we meditate for this next 30 minutes or so on what Your Word has to say, Lord, use it. Use Your Word now. Divinely inspired, living and active to mold us and to shape us into the men and women that You would have us be. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so my sermon idea, my main idea for this morning's sermon is God's presence allows us to live fearlessly. And so if you're with us for the first time, this is the fourth sermon in our Advent sermon series called God With Us. And in each of the texts, we've been looking at something where, where God says He is with us. And we see that again in today's text, that God is with us. And because God is with us, we can live fearlessly. I have four points I want to make from our text this morning. The first point is this. Listen up. Listen up. We've all probably been there. Maybe we've actually been in person in a courtroom. If we haven't been in person in a courtroom, we've certainly seen courtroom scenes on television. We know we're familiar with that. 
the judge comes in and the bailiff says, all rise. Everybody stands up and waits for the, for the judge to come and take a seat. And then everybody can um, be seated. Uh, I didn't know this until I was actually in a courtroom one time, not, not the defendant, mind you, but I was in a courtroom for, for jury selection one day. And I, you know me, I don't have bibliophobia. I love books. And so I'm always carrying a book around with me. And I thought, well, I'm going to be on jury duty. I may as well carry a book with me in there to do some reading. And the bailiff, as I was coming in, says, don't open that book while you're in here. It's like, really? I'm not, I'm not allowed to open a book while I'm in here? And the judge would not allow you to read while you're in, in the courtroom because the judge wanted all of the attention focused on the proceedings. Didn't want to have somebody, didn't want to hear this during the proceedings. Wanted the attentions on the proceedings. Of course, no cell phones, full attention on what is happening. And of course, if you don't do that, what do you get? You get contempt of court, right? You get in trouble. Well, our text today begins with this courtroom scene. Our attention is to be on God and God alone. He says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Now, the coastlands here would be a reference to the, those furthest regions of, um, of, of God's people, from the furthest regions from Jerusalem. So from the farthest region, ever, not just those of you who are close, but even to the coast, all of you pay attention. This, this reference to coastlands, it appears some 17 times in the book of Isaiah. And he's drawing all of our attention. And so he's saying, listen up. Court is in session. It's point number one. It's the shortest of our points. Point number two is we see trouble is a fact of life. And we're going to see this in verses two and three. In verse two, we learn why we're in the courtroom. Because there's this certain one, this certain person from the east, who's, who's been stirred up, Isaiah tells us. But he doesn't tell us here in the text who that certain person is. It's just this, this one from the east who's been stirred up. And so we don't know right now who that person is. And so who are we to make that person out to be? Some scholars have believed that that is a reference to Abraham. So Father Abraham. Abraham came from Ur of the Chaldeans, which would be to the east. And some say it was Abraham. John Calvin is one of those who would say this is a reference to Abraham. Others say this is a personification of Israel. I, I don't know, maybe. A more convincing argument can may, be made perhaps that this one from the east is the Messiah. And later in the book of Isaiah, we, we come to some passages that refer to the suffering servant or to the Messiah. And so maybe this is an introduction to the Messiah. An argument can be made for any of those, but I think the most likely argument for who this person from the East is, is a guy named Cyrus. Now, if you're familiar with ancient history, you know this guy, Cyrus the Great. He was the king of the Persian Empire. He lived during the 6th century B.C. It's a ruthless king and ruled a vast domain. Now, why, why do I think it was Cyrus? Well, I believe... Isaiah leads us to believe this is um, Cyrus. So if you turn with me just a couple chapters over to chapter 45. I'm going to read one verse for us here. This is the introduction. It even gives us his name here in, verse 40, in chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. And who is his anointed? Cyrus, 
whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. And so this reference, I believe, here in chapter 41 is a foreshadowing of what God is going to tell us about Cyrus later. But notice what this one, who I believe to be Cyrus, and I'm not alone, by the way, on that. I think that's the majority of scholarship is saying that this is a reference to, to Cyrus. But notice what Cyrus does. This is all in verses 2 and 3. He has victory at every step in verse 2. He conquers nations. He tramples kings under his feet. He makes those nations and those kings to be like dust with his sword. And he makes them like driven stubble with his bow. So we have this picture here of this mighty military conquering king who is wiping out other nations. And he pursues those kings as he himself passes on safely. Now, if you know anything about the ancient world and about the Persian Empire, this is exactly what happened. This is exactly how the Persian Empire came into being. The Persians, of course, overtook the Babylonians. And this is, this is what's happening. This is Cyrus. Cyrus spells gloom and doom for everyone who is going to get in his way. Cyrus, if you will, is trouble personified. You don't want to be on Cyrus's bad side. But beloved, trouble is a fact of life. It is, right? We, we all experience trouble. All of us do. Maybe, maybe your trouble is of a financial variety. You know, you're constantly juggling which, which bills can I pay right now? And uh, a preacher that I like to listen to once, once upon a time, he said he, he grew up in a, in a single, with a single mother as his parent. And he says, you know, his mother was never able to make ends meet, but they could get close enough to wave at each other sometimes. And so that's, you know, this idea that, that we're, that we're struggling financially. And maybe that's, maybe that's you. Maybe that's your trouble. Maybe your trouble is more familial type of trouble. So family strife. Your marriage is struggling. You have children who are rebellious. I've told you this story before. It's been a number of years and we have new people here, so I'll, I'll, I'll briefly tell the story again. In, in another lifetime, I used to work for Prudential. When I got, when I got out of college, I worked for Prudential. And I had some clients. I would regularly go visit my clients and one particular client that I had never met before, I went to their house to talk with them about their investments and the like. And I was greeted at the door with a just a very weak handshake and I thought that was strange at first. And I looked to my side and I noticed there was a hole about the size of a fist in the drywall. And I'm 23 at this time, okay? So I don't single, don't have any reference about being a parent myself and the mom and dad they invite me to come to the kitchen we sit at the kitchen table and we're talking about their investments and they have a teenage son who's about as old as my youngest now and he's in the neighboring room playing music really really loud so that we're having to raise our voices just to talk to one another at the, at the kitchen table well mom yells to the boy you know please turn down the music so we can talk. And the boy responds to her with, F you, Mom. But he didn't say F you. He, he went ahead and spelled the whole thing out. And I remember, so I'm 23 years old, okay? And I remember thinking, I, I remember at first just freezing and wondering, what are these parents going to do? Because I know if that had happened in my household, 
I would be seeing the dentist the next week to, to get some teeth replaced. Um, and that's a little bit of an overstatement, but not much of an overstatement. Because we weren't allowed to talk to our parents that way. And both mom and dad, they went, like, like what are we going to do? And I remember thinking, that family experienced some significant strife. Now I'm old enough now to look back and think, yeah, parenting does come with its own difficulties. If, if you think parenting is, oh, it's all just bed and roses, and it's all easy, then, well, then you haven't been parenting long enough. So parenting does come with its difficulties. Maybe that's your difficulty right now. You have a rebellious son. You have a son that says, hey, Pastor, you haven't heard the, heard the half of it. My son has said worse than that to me. Maybe you have work-related problems. You've been asked to do something you don't want to do. I talked with one church member uh, a few weeks back, and and this individual was working in a government facility, and they were requiring the vaccine mandate or the vaccine. It was being mandated, and this particular church member didn't want to take it, but it was a matter of either take the vaccine or find another job. And so maybe that's the difficulty you're facing. Or it could be health issues. You, you just found out from your doctor you have high cholesterol, you have high blood pressure, and the doctor says, oh, and by the way, you know, it wouldn't hurt if you lost 20 or 30 pounds. And you're thinking, oh, great. This is exactly the kind of news I wanted to hear. Merry Christmas. But we live in a broken world, don't we, friends? We live in a broken world. Our, our world wasn't created that way. It wasn't created broken. It was created perfect. We read all about that in the first two chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, a perfect world. Sin doesn't exist in this world. But by the time we get to the third chapter of Genesis, the perfect is exchanged for the broken. Our ancestors, Adam and Eve, both of them decide to sin. They decide to rebel against God and His good and perfect rule, and they sin. And because they sin, not only are Adam and Eve affected, but everything in the world is affected. To this day, everything is affected. Our marriages are affected. Our children are affected. Our finances are affected. Our workplace, everything is affected by the fall. And so we might not be facing the king of a pagan empire. We might not have Cyrus coming after us, but we still live in a broken world. And because we live in this broken world, we live facing the consequences of that brokenness. It's part and parcel for where we're at. It's a fact of life. I'd love to be up here and tell you, listen, trouble, it's all an illusion. None of that really, it doesn't really matter. None of that is really happening in your life. But we know better. We know that's not true. We live in a broken world. And because we live in a broken world, trouble is a fact of life. That's point number two. But what are we to make of this brokenness? Point number three is, I want us to see that God is in control. God is in control. Look at, look at me at verse 4 from our text. In verse 4, God, God is asking about this one who comes from the east who's been stirred up. You know, he's saying, who, who performed all this? Who's the one who's calling generations from the beginning? In, in other words, God is saying, who is responsible for this, this person, this ravaging pagan king, who's the one who's responsible for all the trouble that's happening around us? Now the answer here might surprise you. 
Because he answers his own question. He says there in the latter half of verse 4, he says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Now, if you're not catching what he's saying, this is what he, he's saying. God is telling us that he is the one who's responsible for raising up that pagan king. He says, I did it. Now, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe that's what he's saying, turn over just a few pages again to chapter, chapter 45 again. Look there with me, please. This is, this is super important that we see this, that we understand what's happening here. In chapter 45, I'm going to read a few more verses this time, so not just the, not just the first verse. In chapter 45, Thus says the Lord to His anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before Him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before Him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before... This is God speaking. I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in the secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by your name. Wow. Stay there. We're going we're to continue in chapter 45, so don't turn back quite yet. God is saying, I raised up this pagan king. I'm the one who brought this trouble on my people Israel. Now we might think, why in the world would God do that? Well, He tells us why He's going to do that. Look, look with me in the next two verses, in verses 4 and 5. He says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call, by, I call you by your name. For the sake of my people, God's saying, I'm calling you, Cyrus, by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. And so God is telling His people here, I raised up this pagan king. I brought this trouble in your life for your own good. Now we might think, really? I mean, wasn't there another way? Couldn't He have done this in a different way? And God's saying, this is for your own good that I'm doing this. I'm doing this for My people. Two more verses in, in chapter 45 and we'll turn back. Verses 6 and 7. That the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides Me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. that the people might know that He is God. You might think, so, so is God sovereignly in control over the things that happen in this world? Even the bad things? Yes, He is. Now you might think, well, I don't like that. Well, the alternative is to say that God's up there going, well, listen, the world's such a mess, I don't even have control over it. It's just going, and I wish I could control then we, then we have a God who's impotent. But we don't have an impotent God. We have a God who is in control. A God who is using everything at His means to bring us to see His glory. 
so that the people might know Him. Years ago, I read a book by Timothy Keller. And in that book, he shared an illustration about going camping. And if you've ever been camping, you know that sometimes you'll wake up in the morning if you're in a, a place that's infected with these little bugs, you'll wake up and you'll have these little bites all over your legs. The little chiggers or whatever you want to call them. Uh, he calls them in the book, and I've, I've used this phrase as well, no seams. No seams. You, you, you open up your tent, you, you pitch your tent, you look, at, you look inside your tent, you look around. You're, it's not like you look inside your tent and you see there's a bear in your tent. You, you can't see them, right? They're, just, they're little, small, little bugs, and so you look in there, okay, everything's fine. I'm, I'm going to go in that tent and I'm going to sleep, and then you wake up in the morning and you have bite marks all over your legs. Well, the bite marks on our legs are proof positive that those bugs were there because I went to bed and they weren't, I didn't have any bite marks and I woke up the next morning and they're all over. So they were there even though I didn't see them. You know, sometimes, here's, here's the point of the illustration. Sometimes we don't necessarily see how God is, you know, we think, well, I wish, I wish this trouble weren't happening to me. And because I can't see with my physical eyes or with, or I can't even begin to imagine why God would allow this trouble to happen to me, I begin to wonder, I don't think this is necessary. But God sees everything. God sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He sees everything. And so just because we can't with our weak intellect, because we can't understand how God is using something, it doesn't mean that God isn't using something. He tells us here in Isaiah 45 that He raised up this Cyrus, this troublemaker, so that His glory might be made known in the Gospel. Now think about that for just a moment. God could have created a world in which there was no trouble, right? That, no, that not, not only there was no trouble, but there never was trouble. He could have created a world in which Adam and Eve didn't sin. And that we still lived, if you will, in perfect harmony. He could have created that world where we all just naturally did what was good and right. But He chose to create a world where we have some measure of choice. That even though He's sovereign, we still have choice in this world. We, we make decisions of the will to either do the right thing or to do the wrong thing. That's the world that we live in. And the reason He created that, beloved, is because it's a greater thing. It's a greater demonstration of love to choose to love rather than to be told to love. And here's what I mean. I've used this illustration with you again, but I think it's an apt illustration. If, if your four-year-old comes up and gives you a big hug after church today and says, Mommy, Daddy, I love you. And they just give you... You're, it's going to give you like a warm feeling inside, right? You know, oh, that's sweet. And then they say in the next breath to you, they say, yeah, my Sunday school teacher told me to tell you that I love you. Well, you know, okay, it's still sweet that they said that, but there's something, you know, if they were told, they like, you you need to go tell them. That, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an entirely different thing when when they come up and they tell you, why did you say that to me, sweetheart? Oh, just because I love you. Out of an overflow of their heart, they wanted you to know that they loved you. That's a greater demonstration of love than, than being told you have to tell somebody that you love them. Well, God created a world in which there is brokenness. 
so that we would be forced then to turn our attention to Him and to His solution for that brokenness. You see, His solution to the brokenness is that He entered into the brokenness. You follow Him? You track with me? Jesus didn't just sit up there on His high, lofty mountain and say, uh, you know, once you get this straight, get this straight. No, Jesus entered in to brokenness. And He gave Himself for us and He lived His life in such a way that those who now choose to trust to Him, that we make a decision of the will to love Jesus and to trust in what Jesus did, that we can now experience that love and we can experience His grace. And that's a far greater demonstration of love than being like living in a world where we're just automatons, if you will. And we, well, we do the right thing because this is how God created us to be. And we do the right thing. We, love, we choose to love God. We choose to love Jesus because something wells up with inside us to say, yes, I want Jesus. But all the while, all the while, God is in control. God is the one who says, I am He. I am the one who's at work. Now back to chapter 41 for our last point. Is I want us to see in the latter half of this, so in verses 5 through 10, that, that Isaiah is laying out for us, if you will, two ways that we can respond. There are two ways that we can respond. So we, we know there's trouble in the world. We, we can't escape that. We know that God is in control and He's using that trouble in one way or another. We don't always know exactly how He's using that, but we know that God is at work. And so now we know that there's two ways we can respond. The first way we can respond is through fear. Look with me at verses 5 through 7. This is, a, this is a textbook demonstration of a fear response. It says, The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! The craftsman strengthens, strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil, saying to the soldering, soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. So even the coastlands, even the farthest regions are afraid of this guy, Cyrus. And do they have cause to be afraid? Well, in, in one sense, sure they have cause to be afraid. If... if if I were to tell you that this afternoon 12 bad guys with automatic weapons were going to enter your home, you would be afraid too, right? I would be. I don't want to have 12 bad guys with automatic weapons enter my home. I'm going to be afraid. But it's how do we respond in those fearful situations? And that's what makes their response of fear particularly troublesome. Notice how these fearful people respond. They respond by turning inwardly. That's what we see in verses 6 and 7. Everyone's helping his neighbor. You might think, well, that's, that's, isn't that good, Pastor? That they're helping their neighbor? They're saying to their, to their brother, be strong. Isn't that good? Well, it would be good if they were saying that in the right way. But, that's, but what they're doing is they're, they're collecting with one another. Notice this, verse 7, so that the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with a hammer strengthens him who strikes with the anvil. And they say at the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it can't be moved. 
Here's what's happening. If you're missing, if you're not reading between the lines, what's happening? They're create. They have this fear, and they say, "Well, how can we respond if we have this Cyrus dude who's getting ready to to take us out?" Let's create. Let's make for ourselves a little idol. That's what they're doing. That's why they have the goldsmith, the craftsmen strengthening one another. They have the hammer. They're shaping for themselves an idol. And so instead of saying, oh God, we need Your help right now, they're facing the trouble and they're going, oh my, what can we do to overcome our fear? Let's create for ourselves an idol. That's how they're responding. And beloved, that is the wrong way to respond to fear. Let me just let me put... Um, feet to that in our, in our modern culture. So we're, we're almost, it's hard to believe this, we're almost two full years into this COVID thing that we're going through right now. And, and experts are saying if it's really a pandemic, it'll take three full years before we're even thinking about coming out of it. So if they're right, then we still have some time to consider this. But I've seen... Christians, and so please hear me, don't hear me wrong. Everything I'm about to say, I'm not saying that this person is not a Christian because they're responding to this, but I've seen Christians, people who genuinely love Jesus, respond in fear to COVID in one of two ways. On, on one hand, we respond in fear by, by thinking, you know, oh my goodness, I could die from COVID. And then we get, we get hyper vigilant about that. But I'm going to let you know a little secret. And I don't mean this to be ugly or anything. But we're all going to die anyways. Right? We're, we're going to die. And if the Lord doesn't come again, we're going to die. As a pastor friend of mine said a couple weeks ago, I was listening to him, he, says, he said to me, he says, I think COVID is just one more way that we can die in this world. Because death is certain. We are all going to die in this world. And, but we respond, so we hear this COVID and we respond in, in an over, overly concerned way that we think, oh my goodness. And we become fearful so that we, we don't even do the things that we once upon a time did. Like we, I'm, praise God, we got a full house this morning, but we have, you know, there were times when, when we had hardly anybody here at church because people were fearful about COVID. And so we respond in fear. That's on the one side. On the other side of the COVID response, so if you're thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not in that group. On the other side, I've heard people respond in fear in the sense like, what is this government doing? The government's taking all my rights. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're doing the vaccine mandates. They're doing, uh, making me wear a mask. They're making me do this. Make me do that. Whatever. And then we respond in the same type of thing. We're responding in fear about what, what is the government doing here? And I'm not saying that... I'm not trying to make a statement about whether mask mandates are good. or I'm not saying that. I'm saying don't be fearful. Don't be fearful of one, one extreme or the other. Don't be fearful of those things. God is in control. Whether I have to wear a mask or don't wear a mask, guess what? God is still on His throne. Whether I die of COVID or whether I live to be a ripe old age and die, God is still on His throne. Don't be fearful on either extreme. Understand that God is in control 
And so one way we could respond to trouble all around us is by fear. But the better way to respond, number two, is by faith. Look with me at the last three verses here, verses 8, 9, and 10. One of my favorite words in the Bible, I, I really mean this genuinely, is the word but. I just, I love that word with, with one T, okay? I like, I like that word. It's a beautiful word. It's a transitional word. It's a contrasting word. Here, here's one way we could respond. We have all of this that's happening, all this fear, all, all this trouble rather, and it's making me want to cower in fear. That's one way I could respond. But there's a better way to respond. In verse 8, but God says, Israel, my servant. And notice how He talks about His people. Israel, my servant. By the way, that's not, a, that's not a negative statement. Oh, you're just a servant. It's a term of endearment. When God calls us His servant, He's not saying, well, you're just my servants. That's not what he, He's saying. You're my servant. You're, you're mine. But Israel, my servant. Jacob, the one whom I have chosen. God has chosen. The offspring of Abraham. How do you like this? My friend. This is how God is addressing us. And then notice what God does. What God Himself does in verse 9. You, talking about His people, you whom I took. God is saying, I took you from the ends of the earth. I called you from the farthest corners. I said to you, you are My servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. You belong to me. These are beautifully comforting words. And then he says in verse 10, Fear not. On the basis of verses 9 and 10, because you're my servant, because I've chosen you, because you're my friends, I've chosen you from the ends of the earth, because of all these things, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. He's urging us here not to turn ourselves inward in the face of trouble, in the face of difficulty. Don't turn inward, rather turn upward. And let's look to God. Because the latter half of verse 10, God Himself, God Himself will strengthen you. God Himself will help you. God Himself will uphold you with His righteous hand. God is in control, beloved. And because He's in control, we can have faith. I read a, a, a quote this morning from a, from a woman named Corrie ten Boom. Some of you will know Corrie ten Boom. She was, uh, lived during World War II and she was famous for taking in Jewish refugees and saving them from the Nazis during World War II in the Netherlands. And she said this. This is a very short quote. She said, There is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. God has no problems, only plans. So, beloved, that means if you belong to Him, then you don't really have any problems either. That God has a plan. He's working that plan out through whatever trouble you might be facing, whatever trouble I might be facing. God is working out that trouble to ultimately draw our attention to.
to God himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this day and for this opportunity to gather together. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for each one who's here today who's made a decision of the will to trust in Jesus. To say, I love Jesus. And I believe that what Jesus accomplished on Calvary's cross through His death, burial, and resurrection, I believe that that was sufficient to take care of all of my needs. Lord, I pray that You help us. Help us to be the men and women that You would have us be. Mold us and shape us evermore into the image of Christ. Lord, we love You and we thank You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.